0: Hello listeners, it's Judy here, back with another episode on metabolic changes, hemodynamics, and connectivity. I've got a bunch of interesting papers in this shorter episode today, all published in March 2021. I've sorted them by narrow imaging modality, including our favorites PET, MRI, and EEG, as well as some less common techniques like SPECT imaging, Retinography, and MEG. Stay tuned, and I'll be back shortly. Welcome to A Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. To start off, we have three papers that use FDG PET imaging. Paper number one is titled Disrupted Metabolic Connectivity in Dopaminergic and Cholinergic Networks at Different Stages of Dementia from 18F FDG PET Brain Persistent Homology Network. It's by first author Xu and last author Guo and found in the journal Scientific Reports. This study looked into the dopaminergic and cholinergic networks involved in metabolic connectivity at different stages of dementia. The authors used FDG-PET to build dopaminergic and cholinergic metabolism networks and performed a persistent homology network analysis to track any changes that occur at different stages of dementia. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the method, Persistent homology basically measures topological features of data that persist across neural networks. They found significant differences in network connectivity between patients with AD and those with MCI. They also successfully determined the structural properties and changes in dopaminergic and cholinergic metabolism at different stages of dementia. The authors conclude that this method can be used to identify dysregulation of dopaminergic and cholinergic networks in the context of dementia. These next two PET studies both include Pittsburgh Compound B, or PIB, used in PET scans to image beta-amyloid plaques. Paper number two is titled, Crossed Cerebellar Dioskysis on 18F FDG PET, Frequency Across Neurodegenerative Syndromes and Association with 11C-PIB and 18F Flortausapyr. It's from the Journal Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism by first author Pravost and last author Rabinovici. Crossed cerebellar diaschisis, or CCD, refers to a decrease in hemispheric cerebellar blood flow, or metabolism, that is contralateral to a supratentorial lesion. The authors of this study defined CCD as a cerebellar asymmetry of greater than 3% with contralateral supratentorial hypometabolism. They used FDG-PET to identify the frequency of CCD in nearly 200 patients with different neurodegenerative diseases. They also looked into the association between CCD and beta-amyloid and tau in a subset of AD patients using 11-CPIB and 18 f flortaucipir. Cerebellar asymmetry was correlated with reverse asymmetry in the cerebellar cortex and basal ganglia. CCD was present in 24% of the subjects and most commonly found in those with corticobasal syndrome and variants of primary progressive aphasia. In beta-amyloid positive patients, cortical tau asymmetry was associated with cerebellar FTG asymmetry and this was mediated by cortical asymmetry. In addition, CCD may also occur in the absence of cerebellar asymmetry due to symmetrical supratentorial degeneration. Moving on, our last PET paper is titled, Feasibility of Pharmacokinetic Parametric PET Images in Scaled Subprofile Modeling Using Principal Component Analysis. This paper is by first author Peretti and last author Valles Garcia and found in the journal NeuroImage Clinical. Here, the researchers explain that the scaled subprofile model using principal component analysis is a multivariate analysis technique used in FDG PET studies to create disease-specific metabolic patterns that help in the diagnosis of neurological disorders such as AD. The purpose of the current study was to determine the feasibility of using quantitative parametric images for this type of analysis on PIB-PET data. The authors performed a scaled sub-profile model using principal component analysis to make four disease-specific metabolic patterns using 15 AD patients and 15 healthy controls. They found decreased cerebral blood flow and SUVR values in the frontal, parietal, and temporal lobes, as well as an increase in binding potential and SUVR in cortical areas. The authors conclude that the combination of parametric images obtained from a single dynamic scan could act as an alternative for AD classification rather than using two independent PET studies. Next up, my personal favorite, the MRI and fMRI section. Only four papers in this category today, but they use some pretty cool techniques in addition to the standard MRI methods. Paper number four is titled, Changes in Resting State Functional Connectivity of Cerebellum in Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease, a Case Control Study. This paper is found in the journal Frontiers in Systems Neuroscience by first author Zhou and last author Pang. The study explored the association between altered functional connectivity in the cerebellum and cognitive impairment in amnestic MCI and AD patients. Using morphometric and resting state MRI, the authors compared the gray matter volume and functional connectivity of the cerebellum with cerebral cortical regions in patients with AMCI or AD and normal controls. No morphometric differences of the cerebellum were revealed across the three cohorts, However, AD patients showed weaker functional connectivity in several cerebral cortical areas compared to the AMCI and normal control groups. Feel free to refer to the original paper if you're interested in finding out the specific regions. The authors also found a positive correlation between left cerebellar functional connectivity strength and cognitive subdomains such as memory and executive function in the AD and AMCI patients. In conclusion, these results showed alteration of cerebral functional connectivity with cerebral cortical regions, and a correlation between cerebellar functional connectivity and cognitive impairment was established in the context of AD and AMCI. The abstract of the next study doesn't give a whole lot of details, but the authors argue that standard fMRI methods for graphical modeling may fail to provide accurate graph recovery. Paper number 5 is titled, Integrating Additional Knowledge into the Estimation of Graphical Models, by first author Boo and last author, letterer, and found in the journal International Journal of Biostatistics. In this paper, the authors address the limitations of existing graphical models by considering information that is often readily available but neglected, including spatial positions of measurements. For example, they take factors such as pairwise distances into account when setting the tuning parameter of neighborhood selection methods. They explain that their technique is computationally convenient, efficient, follows a Bayesian model, and improves the statistical stability of traditional methods. In the context of AD, this approach illustrated the importance of lobes in the connectivity structure of the brain and revealed increased connectivity in the cerebellum of AD patients. Paper number 6 also involves fMRI. It's titled, Simultaneous Differential Network Analysis and Classification for Matrix Variate Data with Application to Brain Connectivity. This one is found in the journal Biostatistics by first author Chen and last author Zhang. To address the brain network connectivity alterations of AD, the study conducted differential network analysis to identify disease pathologies and clinical biomarkers for diagnostic purposes the authors used the Kronecker Product Covariance Matrices Framework to explore spatial and temporal correlations of neurophysiological data presented in matrix form. To account for variability in network connection strength across subjects, they created an ensemble learning procedure that classifies the differential interaction patterns of brain regions between patients and controls. They then applied the proposed method to the functional connectivity analysis of an fMRI study on AD patients. The authors found that differential interaction patterns were consistent with existing studies and concluded that the classification and performance of their proposed technique contributes to the medical diagnosis of AD. Paper number 7 is a little different as it uses MR encephalography, which is a technique that provides ultra-fast measurements of physiological activity in the brain. It's titled, Cardiovascular Brain Impulses in Alzheimer's Disease, and found in the journal Brain by first author Rajna and last author Yemi The authors explain that accumulation of amyloid beta and alterations in cerebral hemodynamics are key features in AD. The study proposes a new ultrafast MR encephalography technique to quantify the 3D propagation of cardiovascular impulses in the brain, a factor that may predict AD progression. The researchers found spatiotemporal abnormalities in the impulse propagation of AD patients, including the arrival latency and propagation speed. They also found reversed impulse propagation in the hippocampal and parietal cortical regions. The author suggests that this abnormality in perivascular CSF impulse propagation may interfere with glymphatic brain clearance of amyloid beta in Alzheimer's disease. Next, we have two papers that use EEG. The first one, or paper number eight, is titled Laxogram, a new EEG tool to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. This paper is from the journal IEEE, Journal of Biomedical Health and Informatics, by first author Rodriguez and last author Freitas. The study introduced a novel EEG signal processing tool called the laxogram, designed to characterize AD activity at the MCI, mild and moderate AD, and advanced AD stages. The authors computed statistical analyses on the distances between conventional EEG subbands to differentiate AD at all stages. They also applied machine learning models to the distances generated from the laxogram to create an automatic diagnostic method for AD. The topographic maps revealed significant changes in the parietal, temporal, and frontal regions throughout the AD stages. Overall, the proposed method improved AD classification at varying accuracies in each stage of AD. Feel free to refer to the original paper for more information if you're interested in reading further. Paper number 9 is found in the journal Current Alzheimer Research and is titled, An Effective Brain Imaging Biomarker for AD and AMCI, ALFF in Slow 5 Frequency Band. The study is by first author Wang and last author Ding. ALFF stands for Amplitude of Low Frequency Fluctuation, which has been used as a potential brain imaging biomarker for differentiating between patients with AD or AMCI and normal controls. The study aimed to determine whether the frequency-dependent pattern of ALFF can effectively classify the different phases of AD. The authors computed ALFF values in three different frequency bands, in AD and AMCI patients as well as normal controls. Local functional abnormalities were also used to study the effect of classification among the three groups using a support vector machine. Within each group, differences in ALFF were mostly located in the hippocampus, posterior cingulate cortex, precuneus, left angular gyrus, and left medial prefrontal cortex. ALFF in the slow 5 frequency band, which is from 0.01 to 0.027 Hz, showed the highest accuracy in distinguishing between the three subject groups. The authors conclude that this frequency band may be useful in differentiating the different stages of AD. And we just have four more papers to go. These studies all use different methods that weren't already mentioned. The first one involves MEG, or magnetoencephalography. Paper number 10 is titled Neuromagnetic Evidence of Abnormal Automatic Inhibitory Function in Subjective Memory Complaint. It's found in the European Journal of Neuroscience by first author Sun and last author Chang. The authors explain that subjective memory complaint, or SMC, is a risk factor for the development of AD and is defined as a self-perceived worsening in memory capacity despite normal performance in standardized cognitive tests. Another term they describe is deficient sensory gating, also referred to as SG, which is the inability to filter out unnecessary or redundant information from the environment and also occurs in AD patients. This paper aimed to study whether cognitively normal elderly individuals with SMC show alterations in SG function when compared to those without subjective memory complaint. The authors performed MEG on 19 healthy controls and 16 SMC subjects during an auditory paired stimulus task. They measured M50 and M100 components using the amplitude ratio of the second response over the first at the cortical level. For those of you that are unfamiliar with measures used in MEG, M50 is the evoked brain signal that occurs 50 milliseconds after the stimulus onset, and similarly with m 100 Subjects with SMC showed significantly greater M50-SG ratios in the inferior parietal lobule as compared to healthy controls. However, no correlations were found between SG ratios and cognitive functions involving inhibitory control in either group. These findings imply that SMC subjects showed intact cognitive functioning but may present with automatic inhibitory deficits prior to the detection of impaired cognitive performance. The next two papers both use techniques involving the retina. Paper 11 is titled, Abnormal Retinal Capillary Blood Flow in Autosomal Dominant Alzheimer's Disease. It's found in the journal Alzheimer's Dementia Amsterdam by first author Singer and last author Kashani. This study looked into retinal capillary blood flow in patients with autosomal dominant AD-causing mutations. Subjects included normal controls and carriers of the PSAN-1, or APP, mutations that were categorized into early-stage and late-stage groups. The authors measured capillary blood flow using an optical coherence tomography and geography-based measure of red blood cell flux through capillary segments. They found greater capillary blood flow in early-stage carriers as compared to late-stage carriers and controls. Both carrier groups showed significantly greater capillary blood flow heterogeneity than controls. The authors conclude that the increased perfusion may be a pathophysiological feature in the pre-symptomatic stages of autosomal dominant AD. And we're almost at the end. The second-last paper for today is called Retinal Ganglion Cell Dysfunction in Preclinical Alzheimer's Disease, an Electrophysiologic Biomarker Signature. It's by first author Asanad and last author Karangia and found in the journal Scientific Reports. The authors of this study performed electroretinography in cognitively healthy individuals with preclinical AD and included those with normal retinal morphology as subjects. They conducted full-field ERG, pattern PERG, and phototopic negative response, which are all objective measures of vision, in 29 participants and analyzed the amplitude and implicit times of the wave components. The preclinical AD group, showed notable retinal ganglion cell dysfunction and significantly decreased phototopic negative response as compared to controls. The authors were also able to distinguish between the two groups using amplitude and implicit time, with 87% sensitivity and 82% specificity. In conclusion, retinal ganglion cell dysfunction, as determined by electroretinography, may be a useful in vivo biomarker of early AD detection. The 13th and final paper of the episode is actually very unique as it looks into eating disorders in the context of dementia and AD. It's titled Eating Disorders in Frontotemporal Dementia and Alzheimer's Disease, Evaluation of Brain Perfusion Correlates Using 99M Technetium HMPAO SPECT with Brodmann Areas Analysis. It's found in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Valotasu and last author Papatrian Tafilou. The authors explain that the most common eating disorders in frontotemporal dementia, or FTD, include overeating and sweet food preference hyperorality, while anorexia and appetite loss are most prevalent in Alzheimer's disease. And that would be the sound of my dog digging away at my bed sheets. Um, please give me a moment while I remind her that I'm trying to record a podcast episode. Mm. Sorry about that. Where were we? The purpose of this study was to determine Brodmann areas associated with eating disorders in FTD and AD. Using the narrowgam TM software, the authors compared perfusion of Brodmann areas on the spec data of 141 FTD or AD patients with that of healthy controls. They found a correlation between eating disorders in FTD patients and hypoperfusion in several brain areas, including the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, left orbital frontal cortex, and left parahippocampal gyrus. Eating disorders in the AD group were correlated with hypoperfusion in the left inferior temporal cortex. The authors conclude that automated mapping of the brain cortex using SPECT imaging is important for increasing our understanding of the neural networks associated with eating disorders in dementia. And that's all I have for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed learning about the wide variety of neuroimaging methods mentioned in this metabolic changes, hemodynamics, and connectivity episode. Feel free to refer to the episode notes for a complete bibliography if you're interested in reading up on any of the papers we discussed. We are still looking for new members to join the Aminder team, so if you think you'd be a good fit, send us your CV at aminderpodcast at gmail.com and we would love to chat with you. To end off, I want to thank Alex for reviewing my script, Ellen Kay for reviewing the recording, Anusha for the music, and the entire sorting team for sorting the March papers. As always, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find our latest updates. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next episode.